everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Ladies Promoting Transparent Advocacy Podcast. I am your podcast host, Shay Pate. As I mentioned on this past Marvelous Motivating Monday, we are doing a two-part series as we celebrate the Democratic Vice President nominee, Senator Kamala Harris. So as we celebrate this wonderful Women Wednesday, this is part two of our Marvelous Motivating Monday. Okay, as we know, Kamala Harris has spent the better part of two decades in public life notching up a long list of things that she was the first to achieve. The first black woman to be elected district attorney in California history. The first woman to be California's attorney general. The first Indian American senator. And now the first black woman and first Asian American to be picked as a vice president running mate on a major party ticket. We explore those roles and how good and bad she has affected many lives. In 1990, Kamala became a prosecutor when a tough on crime political culture flourished in California and African Americans were hit hardest. Blacks incarceration rate remains more than five times their share of California population. I remember during the second presidential debate, Tulsi Gabbard blasted Kamala about this record, and many, including myself, were surprised to hear what was being said. Many Blacks are weary of her 27 years as a prosecutor enforcing laws that sent them to prison. This article also mentioned how left unsaid is that Kamala did not play a role in passing those laws. I wasn't focused much on this topic, but suggest you do your research. I mean, I won't focus much on this topic, but suggest you do your research on this and see the role that Kamala may have or may not have played in passing these laws. I wanted to mention the subject because, as I mentioned, I was kind of surprised to hear about that, and it is always going to be the elephant in the room. And plus, I want to keep making sure that I am transparent. We listen to various videos about where she stands on politics and issues everyday people care about. And since there are so many topics to address, I decided to solely focus on the coronavirus because this one is this one thing is affecting all of our day-to-day issues such as health care, unemployment, stimulus packages, schooling, traveling, wearing masks, and injustices as the effect of people of color are different. She talks on MSNBC's Rachel Maddow about her and Joe Biden's take on these issues and questions. Supreme Court Justice nominee Judge Amy Barrett. Having those, excuse me, having these two powerful ladies communicate about this issue, coronavirus that is, was interesting to me. Kamala has a way of making people think, stumble on their own words, and reevaluate their own beliefs in her questioning. These two ladies alone is why I opened up this episode with Beyonce's woman's anthem, Run the World Girls. Take it easy, man. We love you too. But right now, this is about the ladies. So please listen to these uh, audios of not just her interview with Rachel, but her questioning of the nominee for the Supreme Court Justice. This campaign, our campaign, as Joe says, is about fighting for the soul of our nation. And when we talk about, when Joe talks about fighting for the soul of our nation, It's about fighting for working people. It's about fighting for families. It's about fighting for children. It's about fighting for health care. It's about fighting for good 
union jobs. It's about fighting to preserve our climate and clean air and clean water. It's about fighting for a pathway to citizenship for our brothers and sisters and renewing protections under DACA. There is so much on the line in this election and there is not a thing we can take for granted. Not a thing we can take for granted. We are here fighting for the soul of our nation, saying yes, we can get criminal justice reform and policing reform. Yes, we can do what is necessary to bring health care to everybody because we believe access to health care should be a right and not just a privilege of those who can afford it. These are the things that are on the line in this election. Well, I guess you guys heard it. That was actually from her Twitter page where she was doing a promotion for the campaign on October 3rd, 2020. So we have to pay attention to what the politicians tell us they're fighting for because what affects us every day is what we want the politicians to care about. We don't want to hear about things that don't affect us. We want to hear about things that affect us and how they're going to make them better for us. So pay attention to what the politicians are saying. It's an honor to have you here tonight. I know you have a choice to be anywhere you want to be. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. It's great to be back with you. Thank you. Um, I want to jump right in with some news that we just learned today. Today, the first lady announced in a written statement um, that her and the president's teenage son, Barron, uh, also tested positive for COVID in the wake of her and the president's own diagnoses. Uh, Barron, oh, no. according to the first lady, has thankfully recovered. He's since tested negative. It's it's such a dramatic piece of news to learn. And of course, we're all grateful about his recovery. But I just have to ask your reaction to the fact that the White House itself really does appear to be a significantly sized COVID cluster of its own, including infecting the whole first family now. Well, I, I wish the best for for the first lady, for her son and, and for the president. I You know, I, I know. Too many people, I think we all do, who have contracted the virus, um, horrible stories of people who have, have lost family members, and I, I, I don't wish it on anybody. Um, the, the suffering that people are experiencing is um, really quite significant. Um, but I will say that, you know, it's what I've been saying, Rachel. The president and this administration have been the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country. Um, you know, you just go back to what they knew and when they knew it. And let's start with January 28th, when the president, the vice president were informed that this thing was deadly, that it could hurt children, that it was five times more deadly than the flu, that it was airborne. And they covered up that information. They didn't share it with the American people. And, you know, when I look at the over, I think it's seven and a half million people that have contracted the virus with as we now know, um, serious, potentially serious lifelong um, consequences in terms of lung scarring and things of that nature. When we look at the over 215,000 people that have died in just the last several months, and they have families and friends and, and they had life to live. Um, and, and you put that in the context of the president's failure to tell the American people what was going on so they could protect themselves and their families, much less so that we could have a, a president and leadership in our country who had a plan to deal with it. And now look where we are. 
Um, it, it has been a, 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 a failure of, of a magnitude that is causing millions and millions of people to suffer because of the public health consequences and because of the economic consequences. And frankly, that is why we need a new president in the White House who will embrace science, who will be guided by fact and truth and speak truth to the American people and have a plan. Because this administration still has no plan, Rachel. They still have no plan. You contrast that with Joe Biden, who's saying we're going to have a national plan for testing and for treatment and for vaccines, which will be free. Contact tracing. Um, this is this was avoidable to the extent that the American people have now suffered. They didn't need to suffer like people have been suffering if there had been leadership guided by science and guided by truth. If you win uh, and you, you and Joe Biden would be taking over control of the federal government in late January, uh, the University of Washington's current projection is that we could be close to 400,000 Americans dead by that point, uh, by, by the end of January. And I know, as you say, that you and Joe Biden have a plan to tackle COVID that is much different than what the current administration has been doing. Um, but particularly because it has been so bad, because of the criticism that you are levying, I think rightly, about the president's approach to this, particularly because of what we have recently learned from the White House, that they are approaching this now with this sort of fringe, half-baked herd immunity idea, which basically means they want as many Americans as possible to get infected and somehow will still protect the elderly and other vulnerable people from dying from it. Do you, do you worry that this might be so bad by the time you take over, if you win in late January, that it will almost be too far gone to turn around. I, I, I despair at how bad this is and how many Americans have died. I am overwhelmed by the prospect about what you are going to be trying to turn around by late January if we stay on the trajectory that we're on now. I mean, let me start by saying that I, I pray I, 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 and that we will have a vaccine as soon as possible and that it will be safe and that we can distribute it to everyone who needs it as quickly as possible. But you're right, Rachel. I mean, when we look at the trajectory based on just where we've been in the last weeks, much less months, we know more people are going to die. We know many more people are gonna contract this virus. And it doesn't help when there's a president of the United States who is also the commander in chief, who still is playing around with people playing around with facts, with bravado, taking a stage and suggesting that he is now immune and, 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 and saying to people who have contracted the virus or those who may that, you know, yet again, he's going back to a theme he's, he's, he's been pushing from the beginning, which is to suggest people shouldn't take this thing seriously. And it, thank God that we have a, an election coming up right now, because can you imagine if we had to deal with two more years of him? Um, and so we have an election and the American people have a clear contrast. On the one hand, there is Joe Biden, who since March has been saying that the plan that he has had in mind should be implemented. Joe Biden, who has been modeling the right behavior in terms of wearing a mask. Meanwhile, Donald Trump took the debate stage and, and made fun of him. And then later, of course, we know what happened. Um, so I think about where we are now, and I think at the very least, the American people have a have light at the end of the tunnel, and there is a plan that they are aware of that can be implemented. And the way that it will be implemented is if over the next 20 days, people vote, they vote early. I invite people to go to JoeBiden.com 
go to IWillVote.com and make sure that you know where your polling place is and if you can vote early. Um, it is within our power to change the trajectory of this, and uh, I'm fully confident that people will do that. Senator, one of the things that I have also been troubled by, and even when I consider the prospect that you and, and, and Vice President Biden are going to win and have the chance to take the country in a different direction on this, uh, I, I worry about the longstanding impact of what we've already been through, um, and that's about the CDC. Um, during the pandemic, yes. we have seen a number of episodes where the CDC has changed or withheld its scientific uh, guidance in response to political pressure from the White House. Uh, the CDC director appears to have repeatedly caved to pressure from the White House, um, which has caused not only damage to the public's confidence in the CDC, it's also caused significant damage to morale among career scientists at the CDC. What is the first thing that you would do to try to start restoring the integrity of the CDC and our ability as a public uh, to trust in what they do? To trust those career people who are the public health experts, who are the scientists, who, you know, there's so many people in the CDC and NIH who have dedicated their lives um, to, to, to working on, you know, research and, and developing those things that will alleviate pain and improve the human condition. And, you know, personal story. My mother, who I talk about often, um, she was a scientist, Rachel. I, you know, she, I grew up going to the lab with her after school and on weekends. And my mother was actually an advisor at NIH. I remember, you know, this kid growing up in California, I would hear about this place called Bethesda. I always knew mommy was going to Bethesda. <laughs> and, and I, so this is perhaps personal for me in addition to being professional, which is we must trust the scientists. These are people who have dedicated their lives to this work. They could care less about who voted for who in the last election. They just want to focus on what is necessary to save lives and, and to help people uh, and be relieved of pain. And so the first step is to trust them and to let them know we trust them and to leave them to do their work, leave them to guide our decisions and our policies when it comes to things like a pandemic. And, and Joe and I feel strongly about it. Remember, Joe, even after um, the presidency, the, the, when he was in as vice president with President Barack Obama, started this whole effort um, he referred to as, as, as um, the moonshot, right? He, Joe cares deeply about science. I've, I've sat in briefings with Joe with worldwide experts on these issues, and he is knowledgeable, he is fascinated, he is interested, he is engaged in what science can do and must do to help the American people. Or yours, Senator Harris. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, first, I want to extend greetings to Judge Barrett, and um, I look forward to our conversation this evening. Thank you, Senator. Uh, thank you. Uh, before I begin, I, I wanted to take a moment to talk directly to the American people uh, about where we are and how we got here. So we are in the middle of a deadly pandemic that has hit our country harder than any other country in the world. More than 215,000 of our fellow Americans have died, and millions more, including the president, Republican members of this committee, and more than 100 frontline workers here at the Capitol complex have been infected. This pandemic has led to an historic economic crisis, causing millions of workers 
to lose their jobs without warning, and 12 million Americans have lost their employer-based health insurance. The Senate, I strongly believe, must be and needs to be laser-focused on you, the American people, to help you get through this pandemic. To do so, the Senate urgently needs to pass critical financial relief for those who are struggling because of this pandemic, and many are struggling. People need help. They need help to pay their rent or mortgage. Parents need help putting food on the table. The millions of American workers who have lost their jobs need help making it through the end of the month. And small businesses need help so they don't have to close their doors for good. But sadly, Senate Republicans have rushed to hold this Supreme Court confirmation hearing rather than help those who are suffering through a public health crisis not of their making. As I said yesterday, these priorities are not the American people's priorities. Since President Obama signed the Affordable Care Act into law, Senate Republicans' number one priority has been to tear it down. And remember, before the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, insurance companies held virtually unchecked power over our health care system. They could refuse to cover basic medical expenses like maternity care, like mammograms, like prescription drugs, or hospital stays. Worst of all, if you were sick, they could deny you coverage altogether. There was nothing you could do about it. Over the last nine years, Republicans in Congress have tried 70 times, 70 times, to repeal or roll back the ACA in the United States Congress. In 2013, Senate Republicans were so desperate to stop its success that they shut down the entire government for weeks. After President Trump was elected, Washington Republicans spent nearly a year trying to repeal the ACA. But I will always remember the thousands of Americans from all over our country and all walks of life who crowded into the halls of the United States Capitol to require that lawmakers see their faces and understand how they would be hurt if there was a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Brave activists in the disability community staged sit-ins on the Hill. Seniors protested to keep prescription drugs affordable. Mothers and fathers walked the halls with their children in strollers to show Congress the face of those who depended on the law. And doctors and nurses protested to protect their patients' access to the care they desperately need. Together with many of my colleagues, I joined civil rights and community leaders to speak to the thousands of people who gathered outside the Capitol as they pleaded, as they begged with lawmakers to do the right thing. All of these dedicated Americans demanding that their voices be heard. And they made a difference. They made a difference. History will remember that late night, thumbs down movement when the great, great John McCain denied Republicans the opportunity to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And now, following a decade of failure, Washington Republicans have realized 
that the Affordable Care Act is working too well and helping too many people to repeal it without facing serious political consequences. But what are they doing? After suffering the backlash they provoked by targeting the law in Congress, they decided instead to circumvent voters and try to strike down the Affordable Care Act through the courts. Right now, the Trump administration and Senate Republicans are urging the Supreme Court to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act and all of its patient protections. Republicans are scrambling to confirm this nominee as fast as possible because they need one more Trump judge on the bench before November 10th to win and strike down the entire Affordable Care Act. This is not hyperbole. This is not a hypothetical. This is happening. And here's what you have to know. People are scared. People are scared of what will happen if the Affordable Care Act is destroyed in the middle of a pandemic. There are more than 100 million Americans with pre-existing conditions like asthma and diabetes, heart disease, who know that they could be denied coverage are charged more by insurance companies if Donald Trump is successful in getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. And because of the coronavirus, more than 7 million people have now a pre-existing condition that they didn't have earlier this year. Those who depend on the ACA are afraid of their lives being turned upside down if the court strikes it down. They know what could happen. And Jeff Barrett, I will share with you and the American people a list. No protections for pre-existing conditions. Higher costs for health care for women and people over the age of 50. Young adults kicked off their parents' insurance. More expensive prescription drugs for seniors. Insurance companies refusing to cover mental health care. Insurance companies refusing to cover maternity care. No free mammograms, cancer screenings, or birth control. Insurance companies reinstating annual and lifetime counts. And more than 20 million Americans losing insurance at the worst possible time, again, in the midst of a pandemic, including nearly 2 million Texans, 607,000 North Carolinians, 288,000 South Carolinians, 227,000 Iowans, and 4.2 million Californians. And the pain of losing these protections would disproportionately be felt among the 9 million African-American, Latino, Asian, and Native Americans who gained coverage under the Affordable Care Act. But this isn't about statistics. This is about millions of real people living real lives who deserve their government and its institutions to see them and to heed their call. And I know a Republican member of this committee said earlier today that the people who will lose health care are somehow not relevant to this hearing. I disagree. Helping these people is supposed to be why we are all here, why we all ran for office in the first place. And I'm here to fight for people like Felicia Perez, and this is her. Felicia is a writer, a public speaker, and former high school teacher from Southern California who now teaches at the University of Nevada, Reno. She has multiple pre-existing conditions, including arthritis, asthma, and a rare autoimmune disorder that caused tumors 
that have wrapped around her optic nerve and part of her brain. Her life depends on periodic cancer-fighting infusions that cost $160,000 a year. Alicia is terrified. She knows that without the Affordable Care Act, she could not afford ongoing treatment, the treatment she needs to stay alive. And here's exactly what she said, and I will quote, My life is in the hands of people I do not know, who do not know me, who are essentially telling me I don't matter, that my life doesn't matter. That my health doesn't matter. That the day-to-day -day quality of my life doesn't matter. And that's really hard. Tragically, Felicia's story is not unique. Her fears are shared by millions of Americans. The Affordable Care Act and its protections hinge on this Supreme Court and the outcome of this hearing. Before being elected, President Trump promised that every justice he put forward would, quote, will do the right thing, unlike Bush's appointee, John Roberts, on Obamacare, unquote. But Barrett, 18 months later, you criticized the Chief Justice for upholding the Affordable Care Act when you concluded, quote, Chief Justice Roberts pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute. My question is, how many months after you published that article did President Trump nominate you to be a judge on the Court of Appeals? Senator Harris, I apologize. I don't remember the timing of that article. I was nominated. I believe my nomination to the Court of Appeals was announced in May of 2017. That's correct. But I don't remember when the article came out. The article was published in January of 2017, so that would have been five months later. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, whose seat you are seeking to fill, provided the critical fifth vote in a 5-4 decision that upheld the Affordable Care Act. So let's lay this out for everyone who's watching. As I've discussed previously, one, Republicans have spent a decade trying to destroy the Affordable Care Act. Two, Donald Trump promised to name Supreme Court justice and Supreme Court justices who would tear down the Affordable Care Act. Three, President Trump is before the Supreme Court right now arguing that it be struck in its entirety. Four, the Supreme Court could be just one vote away from overturning the Affordable Care Act and all of its protections, including for everyone who has a pre-existing condition or may ever get a pre-existing condition. In other words, the Affordable Care Act and all its protections hinge on this seat the outcome of this hearing. And I believe it's very important that the American people understand the issues at stake and what's at play. Judge Barrett, the day after President Trump announced your nomination to the Supreme Court, he tweeted, quote, Obamacare will be replaced with a much better and far cheaper alternative if it is terminated in the Supreme Court, end quote. But in reality, there is no alternative that protects the millions of Americans who depend on the Affordable Care Act every day. The horrifying truth is that President Trump and the Republicans in Congress are fighting to take health care away from the American people in the middle of a pandemic, as I have said. President Trump has said that he wants to protect the American people's health care. But the reality is right now he is asking the Supreme Court to take it away, period. Senator Klobuchar, Judge Barrett, asked you earlier today, but did not receive an answer. 
prior to your nomination, were you aware of President Trump's statements committing to nominate judges who will strike down the Affordable Care Act? And I'd appreciate a yes or no answer, please. Well, Senator Hess, I want to be very, very careful. I'm under oath. I, as I'm sitting here, I don't recall seeing those statements, but if, let's see, I don't recall seeing or hearing those statements, but I don't really know what context they were in. So I guess I can't really definitively give you a yes or no answer. What I would like to say is I don't recall hearing about or seeing such statements. So I imagine you were surrounded by a team of folks that helped prepare you for this nomination hearing. I have did had, they, yes. They, well, let me finish if you don't mind. Oh, I'm so did sorry. They, did they inform you of, of the president's statements and that this might be a question that was presented to you during the course of this hearing? Um, when I had my calls with senators, um, it came up many of, many of the Democratic senators wanted to know about the Affordable Care Act and to satisfy themselves that I had not made any pre-commitments to the president about it. And so you then became aware of the president's statement, is that correct? Um, let's see, Senator Harris, in the context of these conversations, I honestly can't remember whether senators framed the questions in the context of President Trump's comments, perhaps so. I think from my perspective, the most important thing is to say that I have never made a commitment, I've never been asked to make a commitment, and I hope that the committee would trust in my integrity not to even entertain such an idea and that I wouldn't violate my oath if I were confirmed and heard that case. So just so I'm clear, and then we can move on, are you saying that you are now, before I said it, aware or not aware that President Trump made these comments about who he would nominate to the, to the United States Supreme Court? All right, Senator Harris, what I was saying, I thought you initially framed the question as whether I was aware before this nomination process began. And the right, answer and I'll to that I'm question, you if you are aware, were you aware before this hearing began? So you're that. changing, you're asking me now whether I was aware before the hearing began? As a follow-up question, I am, yes. Um, and what I said was that when I had my calls with Democratic senators, this question came up, and I don't recall, but it may well have been that they referenced those comments in the course of those calls. Even if so, that wasn't something that I heard or saw directly by reading it myself. Senator Leahy asked you earlier today, but I think it bears repeating, do you think it is important for the American people to believe that Supreme Court justices are independent and fair and impartial? And that is a yes or no answer, please. Yes, Senator Harris. A number of my colleagues have asked you today whether you would recuse yourself from cases on the Affordable Care Act. You did not directly answer their questions and instead you described a process by which that would um, work or happen. And so my question is, isn't it true that at the end of that process, regardless of that process, that it would be you who ultimately would make the decision about whether or not you would recuse yourself? That is true, and I can't have you elicit a commitment from me about how I would make that decision in advance. That would be wrong. Right, and what I've asked you is that, is it not correct that that is the process, but ultimately it would be you, and you alone, that would make the decision about whether you would be recused. You've already opined on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, and that position satisfied the president's promise to only nominate judges who would tear down the Affordable Care Act and Senate Republicans rushed this process so that you could rule on this very case. The reasonable question about your impartiality will undoubtedly hang over this court's ultimate decision 
in the Affordable Care Act um, case if you refuse to recuse yourself. I strongly believe that. Um, Supreme Court justices routinely consider the consequences of their decisions on people's lives. Hey, everybody. As you could see, I let all the audio run back to back. It wasn't just her interview with Rachel and an interview I found on Twitter, but also her interview in the Supreme Court Justice nominee, Amy Barrett. And as you could see in that interview, she was, she had the just, the judge very confused about her own words and the things she said she was going to do. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I apologize if the audio is a little blurred because, as you know, if you were watching the hearings, Kamala was calling in through the video and I was getting that information uh, second and third hand. You know, I always apologize for the audio not being as clear as I would want it or you may expect it to be. And it's going to get better. There's a lot of engineering I'm learning as I'm doing this on my own. I can't wait till we can get one on one interviews. But my goal is to be transparent, no plagiarisms. That's why I always identify my sources. But I just want to make sure you guys get the message. That's the whole point of this podcast is to get the information out there. And unfortunately, a lot of people get their information from social media. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And like I said, we mainly focusing on a coronavirus with Kamala Harris and the things she's saying and the questioning she's asking during the Supreme Court justice hearings. And I want you guys to just pay attention and do your research. So if you have any comments or questions, please give us a call at 404-855-7723. You can always give us an email at podcasthostshapate19 at gmail.com. We ask that you follow us on Twitter at Advocacy Ladies. That's capital A as in advocacy, capital L as in ladies. And we definitely would love for you to follow us on all of the different apps. We're at uh, Apple, excuse me, um, Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Pandora, and yes, uh, Amazon Alexis. Tune in. So, you know, I like to end all my questions with the, excuse me, all my episodes with the question, what do you have to say? Thank you for listening.